I'm Rob Kirkup. Welcome to How Haunted, a weekly paranormal podcast where each episode we explore the horrible history and terrifying ghost stories of one of the scariest places on the planet. In episode 62, we head to the southeast of England, and in particular to a fortification that has defended the coastline for almost a thousand years. It has witnessed all manner of horrors, and as a result, is believed to be one of the most haunted castles in all of Britain. The ghost of a murdered drummer boy is still heard playing his drums on the battlements. The sights and sounds of World War II are heard in the secret tunnels that run beneath the castle. And I'll tell you all about a terrified listener who got the fright of her life following a paranormal investigation here just last year. This week, join me as we ask, just how haunted is Dover Castle? Listener Listener discretion discretion is advised as each episode of How Haunted will feature gruesome tales, horrific happenings, bloody murder and ghosts. So many ghosts. Listen on if you dare. Known as the Key to England due to its defensive significance and its position guarding the Strait of Dover, the shortest sea crossing between English and continental Europe, Dover Castle in Kent was built, as it appears today, in the 1180s. But it was built atop an existing fortified site dating from the Saxon times, and a 2nd century Roman lighthouse still stands within its walls. In its key defensive position on Castle Hill looking out over the White Cliffs of Dover, it's guarded England for centuries initially protecting the south of the country from pirates, and then from the French army under the command of Napoleon Bonaparte. The earliest history of Dover Castle is unclear. Archaeological evidence suggests that there was an Iron Age occupation here with the earthworks of a hill fort. In the region, hill forts were generally built between around 500 BC and the Roman invasion of 43 AD. They were built variously as places of permanent habitation or refuge. Following the Roman invasion of England, this area was under Roman occupation, and there is one of only three surviving Roman-era lighthouses anywhere in the world, here at Dover Castle. The lighthouse, or Faros, is the oldest surviving lighthouse in the country, and one of the oldest in the world, dating from around 46 to 50 AD, in the reign of Emperor Claudius. It's the oldest standing building in Britain, as well as being the tallest and most complete Roman structure in the country. The four-level octagonal structure was constructed using local Kentish ragstone, tufa and Roman brick. It was originally 24 metres tall and was 6 to 8 storeys high. Today it's 19 metres, with modern masonry added around 1430, making up the top floor. In the time of the Romans, a beacon of fire would have enabled Roman boats and ships to cross the channel and find their way safely into the harbour at Dover. Today it is integrated in the late Anglo-Saxon church of St Mary in Castro, as it was used as a bell tower. The church itself is constructed from Roman building materials and it was built in around 1000 AD. The work and church was partly rebuilt in the medieval era and it was restored including the lighthouse by the Victorians between 1913 and 1915 after many years of neglect. One of the other three Roman lighthouses in the world is also in Dover. It's a shapeless lump of masonry, known as the Bread and Stone or the Devil's Drop of Mortar, and it's located on the opposing western heights across the town of Dover. The Romans also built a fort here at the mouth of the River Dower. Work began on the fort in around 113 AD, completed in around 130 AD, and it was named Dubris. It was built for the Classes Britannia, a Roman fleet that patrolled the Eastern Channel. It was commanded by a procreator and had its main base at Boulogne, 
but the Dover Fort was an important installation. This was one of ten regional fleets of the Roman navy. No trace of the fort remains, as the Romans demolished it in 215 AD, and another was built in around 270 AD, which remained in use until the Romans left England in the 5th century. Following the successful Norman invasion of Britain in 1066, forces, led by William the Conqueror, marched on Dover to capture the port. The inhabitants of the existing castle surrendered unconditionally, and the Normans burned the castle that was here to the ground. The new King William I then paid for the castle to be rebuilt, although nothing of William's castle remains follow an extensive rebuilding that took place between 1179 and 1188 in the reign of King Henry II, the first of the Plantagenet kings of England. At a cost of around £6,500, Dover Castle as we know it today started to take shape in the vision of his engineer, Morris. The inner and outer baileys and the keep were all built during this period. A huge centrepiece was also constructed, the Great Tower, an archaeological marvel that combined defence with a palatial residence. Some historians believe that the King of Dover remodelled following the assassination of Thomas Becket, the Archbishop of Canterbury. He was murdered in 1170, which led to Canterbury Cathedral becoming a pilgrimage site. The King desired a magnificent castle, in which to entertain important visitors taking the journey through Kent to the cathedral. Ironically, the order to kill Becket seems to have come from the King himself, although ever since, it's been debated as to whether this was the case, or whether the four knights who carried out the act misinterpreted the King's frustrated outburst. Will no one rid me of this turbulent priest? as being instructions to kill the Archbishop. The Knights, Reginald Fitzurse, Hugh de Morville, William de Tracy and Richard Le Breton, accompanied by a cleric loyal to the King, arrived at Canterbury Cathedral on the 29th of December 1170. According to accounts by the monk Gervais of Canterbury and eyewitness Edward Grimm, the Knights hid their swords nearby before entering the Cathedral and demanding that Becket should go to Westminster. He said no. The knights retrieved their swords and went back inside to kill him. Monks attempted to lock themselves away, but the archbishop told them to open the doors, saying, It's not right to make a fortress out of the house of prayer. Swords drawn, the knights marched in crying out, Where is Thomas Becket? Traded to king and country. They found him near the monastic cloister. The monks were chanting evening prayer. He said, I am no traitor, and I am ready to die. They tried to drag him outside, but he held on to a pillar. Edward Grimm, a monk from Cambridge who was at Canterbury Cathedral on that fateful day on the 29th of December, witnessed Thomas Becket's murder. Part of his account reads, The impious knight suddenly set upon him and shaved off the summit of his crown, which the sacred chrism consecrated to God. Then with another blow received on the head, he remained firm. But with the third, the stricken martyr bent his knees and elbows, offering himself as a living sacrifice, saying in a low voice, for the name of Jesus and the protection of the church, I am ready to embrace death. But the third knight inflicted a grave wound on the fallen one. With this blow, his crown, which was large, separated from his head. So the blood turned white from the brain, yet no less did the brain turn red from the blood. It purpled the appearance of the church. The fifth, not a knight but a cleric who had entered with the knights, placed his foot on the neck of the holy priest and precious martyr, and, it is horrible to say, scattered the brains with the blood across the floor, exclaiming to the rest, We can leave this place, knights. He will not get up again. Three years later, in 1173, Pope
Pope Alexander III made Thomas Becket a saint. There was a belief that Becket's blood spilled on the floor of the cathedral had the power to heal the sick. Canterbury Cathedral became a popular pilgrimage site for people from all across Europe. Dover Castle came under siege many times during the 13th century. Firstly during the First Barons' War between 1215 and 1217. King John of England fought off a group of rebellious major landowners led by Robert Fitzwalter and the future Louis VIII of France who had came in an attempt to seize the English crown. The castle stood strong despite the constant attempts to take it, although the main gate at the northern end and the Barbican were all but destroyed. By the time the war ended, England was under the rule of Henry III, and he had the north gate blocked off entirely, as it had proved vulnerable, and he added two new gates in strategic positions, Fitzwilliam Gate on the east side, and Constable's Gate on the west side, which was also a residence for the castle constable. The Barbican was rebuilt, and other improvements were made to the castle. By the mid-13th century, Dover Castle stood as one of the largest and most impressive castles in all of Europe. October 1265 saw the castle sieged once again during the Second Barons' War. Eleanor de Montfort was in residence. She was the sister of King Henry III who the barons had declared war on, feeling that he was given too much influence to foreign relatives of the royal family. Eleanor was married to Simon de Montfort, 6th Earl of Leicester, a nobleman of Norman French origin and the baronial party's leader in opposition to the king. In 1264, following the capture of Henry III and his heir, the future Edward I, at the Battle of Lewes, Simon became the de facto ruler of England. Tragedy struck Eleanor on the 4th of August 1265 when both her husband and elder son Henry were killed at the Battle of Evesham. This left her in a very vulnerable position. As an influential member of the overturned regime in possession of Dover Castle, a key strategic location, she was naturally a target. The castle was besieged but she negotiated a deal where she would return the castle to the king and in exchange she could be exiled to the continent and all of her supporters pardoned. On the 28th of October she left England to become a nun in France. She remained there to her death in 1275. In the Tudor period Dover Castle retained its importance to king and country. In 1539 and 1540 King Henry VIII had artillery forts built in Dover and all along the southeast coast. This was part of the king's preparation for the threat of an overseas invasion. This hung over him following the culmination of his involvement in a dispute between Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, and Francis I, King of France, and the way that he'd handled his divorce from Catherine of Aragon. Add into the mix his dissolution of the monasteries and taking control of the Church of England. This had resulted in a furious Pope Paul III encouraging an alliance against Henry VIII and against England. In 1539 the apartments in the Grey Tower were renovated in readiness for Anne of Cleves' arrival to marry the king, becoming the fourth of his six wives. Their marriage lasted six months and six days. Their marriage was annulled, having never been consummated. Henry saw the marriage necessary in order to form a political alliance with her brother William, Duke of Julich Clevesburg, who was a leader of the Protestants of Western Germany. This would strengthen his position against potential attacks from Catholic France and the Holy Roman Empire. In 1573, Elizabeth I visited Dover Castle, and she ensured that the castle was kept battle-ready during war with Spain, which lasted from 1585 to 1604. The Great Tower once more received a makeover in 1625, when the French Princess Henrietta Maria came to the castle en route to wed Charles I. This would be the last time a royal would ever make use of Dover Castle. 
The castle wasn't occupied again until it was used to hold French and Spanish prisoners during the Nine Years' War between 1688 and 1697, and the War of Spanish Succession between 1701 and 1714. Graffiti from the prisoners held there can still be seen on the castle walls today. The mid-18th century saw new threats in the form of a Jacobite uprising in 1745, and attempts from France to invade in 1744 and 1745. King George II wanted to ensure that the nation's defences could withstand whatever was thrown at them, and as a result restoration work and improvements were made at the decaying Dover Castle. New barracks were constructed that would house 800 men, ready to fight when the time arrived. Strategic alterations were made to the castle defences to protect it from cannon shot, as well as allowing cannons to be fired from the castle. The most significant changes since the time of Henry II over 600 years earlier were made at the end of the 18th century, during the French Revolutionary War of 1792-1802 and the Napoleonic Wars of 1803-1815. By the time the Second Treaty of Paris was signed on the 20th of November 1815, Dover Castle was a formidable artillery fortress and barracks, due to the new gunpowder magazines and the Grey Tower being a vast store for gunpowder, shot and other military supplies that had been put in place during the wars. When the war ended there was no need for such great military presence and the men occupying the barracks left Dover Castle. Between 1818 and 1828 the Coast Blockade utilised them. This was an anti-smuggling force trying to combat the smuggling that was rife at the time. Tea, cloth, wine and alcohol were brought into the country in huge quantities, as they had been throughout the 18th century. In the middle of the 19th century, Dover Castle's importance for defence on the coast saw it repaired and improved once again. In 1853 the Inner Bailey and Great Tower were strengthened. This was followed by the magnificent Officers' New Barracks in 1856, and buildings for the betterment of the soldiers, including the Regimental Institute opened in 1868, and the Garrison School, which opened in 1870. Fort Burgoyne was added in 1865, which was the building of a new fortress, and with once again weaponry being updated, and the arrows and cannonballs that would have once been the projectile weapon of choice being completely obsolete, Four groups of large guns at the Hospital, Shot Yard, East Demi and Shoulder of Mutton Batteries were built between 1871 and 1874 along the cliff edge. These were capable of firing far out to sea against the new threat of steam-driven ironclad warships. The 4th of August 1914 saw Britain declare war on Germany, following Germany's refusal to remove their troops from neutral Belgium. This was the start of World War I. A conflict that would cost the lives of around 16.5 million people over four long, hard years. Dover Harbour became the home of the Royal Navy's Dover Patrol to defend the Dover Strait, particularly against German submarines. Dover had a garrison of around 16,000 troops, with the castle acting as a headquarters. In 1939, the Second World War broke out, and once again, Dover Castle was of great importance to the war effort, and its role in the war is probably what Dover Castle is best known for today. Once more the castle acted as a headquarters, and was pivotal in the protection of the nation from attacks from the sea and from the sky. It is remembered best for being the location where the emergency plans were drawn up in Operation Dynamo, to bring the British Army back from Dunkirk in May and June 1940, leading to the successful evacuation of 338,226 British and Allied troops. During the Second World War, two levels of tunnels were built here in secret. These added to the three tunnels that existed from medieval times. The first new tunnel was called Annex, 
and was completed early in 1942 as a small hospital. The second, called Dumby, opened in 1943 as a combined operations centre with provision for large-scale communication transmission, and it had room for 300 people. Dumby played a significant role in Operation Neptune, the naval side of the plan for D-Day, and also in a successful deception operation known as Fortitude South, which convinced the Germans that the main invasion of Europe would be from the Calais area, not Normandy, and that it would be launched from the Dover area. Prime Minister Winston Churchill visited the secret operations centre at Dover Castle during World War II. When the war ended in 1945, the tunnels were used as a shelter for the regional seats of government in the event of a nuclear attack. This was prompted by the nuclear attacks at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and the subsequent invention of the hydrogen bomb. Today the annexed tunnels are open to the public, but Dumpy has been kept secret, never been open to the public. This is to change however on Thursday the 11th of January 2024 in an event called Revealing Dumby. It's being ran for English Heritage members, where for the price of £47 for adults and £20 for children, these secret tunnels will be open to the public for the first time. Today the Grade 1 list at Dover Castle is open to the public, and it's maintained and operated by English Heritage, who spent £2.45 million between 2007 and 2009 recreating the castle's interior. There are two sacred places within the grounds of the castle, the Royal Chapel, which is located within the keep, and dedicated as St Thomas Becket, and the Church of St Mary in Castro. It's been said that it's the largest castle in England, although this is also mistakenly said about Windsor Castle. In reality Dover Castle is about 50% larger than Windsor, but Windsor is the largest occupied castle in the country. Dover Castle has a long, bloody and occasionally dark history, with the castle seeing almost a thousand years of occupation and witnessing countless battles, invasions, sieges and death and suffering. The site upon which it stands has a history stretching back even further, and with such a history, it's unsurprising that Dover Castle is believed to be home to all manner of ghosts and spirits dating from many eras. Some have even said that it's one of the most haunted places in the UK. The best known ghost that haunt Dover Castle is the Drummer Boy. He lived during the Napoleonic Wars and was chased by French attackers down into the labyrinth of underground passages and tunnels beneath the castle. He was caught, and despite being a young unarmed boy, he was beaten within an inch of his life and then his head was removed from his shoulders with one swipe of a sword. A headless phantom is seen walking around the castle battlements, and on other occasions Drummond is heard, the source of which is never found, for it is the ghost of the young drummer boy. Within the keep, a woman in a flowing red dress is seen, accompanied by a man who appears to be dressed in the clothing of a cavalier. Who they are, their connections to one another, and why they continue to haunt this area is unknown, but they are reported regularly, appearing so real that visitors have thought them to be staff dressed in period costume. Within the Annex Tunnel soldiers from World War II have been seen and heard. In the 1990s an American couple were in the tunnels and they both jumped when they suddenly heard blood curdling screams and cries, begging for help. They thought it to be some motion sensor activated sound effects and they were both impressed by how realistic they were. They said as much to staff, who were puzzled and informed the couple that there's no such recreations anywhere at Dover Castle. Invisible whispered voices are heard in the dead of night, indiscernible murmurs heard throughout the halls and the corridors. Doors open and slam and closed of their own volition happens all too often. And then there are the sudden drops in temperature. No matter the weather outside, 
visitors suddenly notice an icy chill all around them. They can see their breath, and they are so cold that they shiver and their teeth chatter. Then it simply vanishes, as quickly as it all began. On one occasion, two television researchers were at Dover Castle to record a documentary. They were walking around the castle, planning out how to film certain shots, when they were walking past the keep, and suddenly they heard a scream come from the battlements above them. It sounded exactly like somebody had thrown themselves over the battlements and to their certain death below, where the pair were currently stood. They dived out of the way, scrambling to safety, simply awaiting the fallen man landing next to them, most likely in a horrific shower of blood and gore. But the sound just stopped. There was no impact. Visitors to the castle can take on one of the castle's ghost tours, and there are even ghost hunts run at Dover Castle on occasion, and they are not for the faint of heart as listener Gemma would find out when she joined one in September 2022. Gemma, who lives in Ashford in Kent, around 25 miles from Dover Castle, went along to a ghost hunt ran by a paranormal events company with her boyfriend Alex. She got in touch with me to tell me all about the unbelievable, nightmarish happenings that unfolded that night. Neither of us had attended a ghost hunt before, but we'd visited Dover Castle over the summer and got chatting to a member of staff who told us some of the ghost stories and we were more than intrigued. Then when they told us about an upcoming overnight ghost hunt at the castle, we went online and bought a couple of tickets. When the Saturday night of the investigation came along, we didn't know what to expect as we parked up at the castle, which looked completely different after dark to how it had been on that sunny summer's day. But the company running it were friendly and put us at ease, and with it being a much bigger group than I expected, I didn't feel scared, initially. During the night, one of the other groups claimed to have seen a shadowy figure in the keep, and elsewhere in the castle they thought they'd been speaking to a ghost through an electronic device. They said they were talking to somebody called Henry, who died while being held prisoner at the castle when he was 28 years old. In our group, which was eight of us led by one of the guys from the paranormal group, things seemed really quiet. When we were in the keep we thought we heard footsteps behind us, but with other groups in the castle we couldn't be sure that it wasn't just one of the people from the other groups. Towards the end of the night we did a Ouija board where another group contacted Henry. We were asked who wanted to sit around the board, and our group all seemed a little scared of it. Alex, as usual, shrugged and said, I'll do it, and then a few others volunteered. I chose to watch rather than get involved. Nothing happened, at first. Questions such as what is your name, resulted in the planchette not moving an inch. How did you die? Nothing. Do you want us to leave? Nothing. But then the guy leading our group started goading the spirits, saying, You can't do anything, can you? You're not powerful enough to move this piece of wood, so you definitely couldn't do anything to us. The planchette began to move, slowly. I wondered if one of the people around the table, as they were all strangers to me other than Alex, was moving it. But they were all looking at each other open-mouthed. The planchette found its way to the first letter, then a second, then a third. The letters were D, then I, then E. Die. I wanted to get out of there, but nobody else moved, so I stayed put. I made eye contact with Alex, I was worried. But he gestured in a way that this was just a big joke, and it was somebody around the table faking it for a reaction. I didn't think that way. Everyone around that table looked shaken. The planchette was still moving. Alex, the idiot, asked a question. Who do you want to die? The planchette kept moving. It was going around the board in circles, 
big wide circles. I then found a letter, and then a second letter, and then a third. I felt sick. The letter spelt out Y, then O, then U. I spoke aloud this time, Alex, come on, we need to get out of here. But we were told we needed to close the session down safely first. But at this point the planchette started moving erratically, big wide circles. And then it flew off the table, clattering against a wall. We all got out of there. We went out onto the barracks to take a break. Everybody was chatting excitedly about what had happened. Most people seemed fairly certain one of the group had been moving it around the board. Alex though seemed a million miles away. I would talk to him and he wouldn't even hear what I'd said. He kept complaining about a severe headache. An hour or so later our night came to an end. We said goodbye to the people in our group we'd befriended across the night and thanked our hosts, giving them a big round of applause. I drove us the 30 minutes or so back to mine. Alex didn't speak a word. I think he'd fallen asleep. It was almost three in the morning when we got to bed and I was asleep the moment my head hit the pillow. I was awoken by a strange noise. My mobile phone screen said that it was 4.44am. I could hear somebody talking in the room. I asked Alexa to turn on the bedroom light and to my absolute horror Alex was in the bed next to me. But he was sat up. His eyes were wide open and he was talking in a voice that wasn't his. What's more, he wasn't even speaking English. I understood the occasional word and knew that the language that he was speaking was French. Alex doesn't speak French. I burst into tears as I didn't know what to do. I couldn't comprehend what was going on. I was convinced I was having a bad dream but I wasn't. I was living a nightmare. I just stood there in my bedroom staring at my boyfriend as he stared forward talking non-stop in a foreign language. Then his head slowly turned towards me and he looked right at me and he started to laugh. I screamed and I screamed and I screamed. I grabbed him and shook him, tears streaming down my face. Then he asked me, in his normal voice, what I was doing. I looked at him. He was back. It was Alex. I sobbed. I told him what had happened and he said I must have imagined it. But I didn't. I know what happened. And I didn't get back to sleep that night. Or for so many nights following. So I know I didn't dream it. It was almost a year ago at the time of writing this email. And it hasn't happened again. Thank God. For a good few months I would only let Alex stay over if one of my friends would agree to sleep in my spare bedroom. Just in case. If it happened again I was ready to march him down to a church and tell them my boyfriend was possessed. And to get whatever the hell was in him out. That voice and that horrible laugh and haunt my dreams. To this day, I wake myself up in the middle of the night screaming. I've been on one ghost hunt, and that was one too many for me. You can follow How Haunted on Twitter at at HowHauntedPod. Or over on Instagram at How Haunted Pod, where you will see photos galore relating to Dover Castle. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by visiting the website at www.how-haunted.com or you can email me at rob at how-haunted.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can sign up to one of three Patreon tiers. They start at as little as £1. 
You can get early ad-free access to episodes and a monthly bonus episode where I conduct a paranormal investigation, talking you through the history, ghost stories, and what happened on the night itself. This is interspersed with audio from the ghost hunt. What's more, there is a free seven-day trial to the £3 tier, so you can get access to the Halloween Patreon episode which was the Golden Fleece in York, as well as all of the other special episodes, which include the National Railway Museum, Dalhousie Castle Hotel, the York Dungeon, and Haggerston Castle Holiday Park. You can also get yourself some How Haunted merch, including a mug and a t-shirt. Find out more at patreon.com forward slash howhauntedpod. If you'd like to support the show but aren't a fan of Patreon, why not donate £2 at buymeacoffee.com forward slash howhauntedpod. All the information and links are in the podcast episode description. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please consider leaving a review on your podcast provider of choice. It really helps other people to find how haunted. Next time out, we're heading out on a ghost trail. But this one will see us encounter spirits of another variety, as we will be focusing on public houses, inns and taverns that are believed to be haunted here in my native northeast. Next week, join me as we undertake a terrifying trail of the haunted pubs of Tyne and Weir. Thank you so much for accompanying me for our paranormal adventures once again. Stay safe, and join me next time when we will once again ask the question, How Haunted? Je vais changer, je vais faire quelque chose. Vous n'êtes pas mort, vous n'êtes pas frappé, si je. Je vais changer, je vais faire quelque chose. Je vais changer, je vais faire quelque chose.